Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. We are proud to share a recording of a live presentation for the LDN Research Trust Conference 2019. We hope you enjoy it. Our next uh, presenter is Dr. Sarah Zilsdorf, uh, traumatic brain injury, low-dose naltrexone, and microglial modification. All right, so I'm Sarah Zilsdorf. I am an internist out of Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a microbiologist and a functional medicine practitioner. Um, I thought I would unpack a little bit about um, brain injury and different levels of brain injury. Um, these are my session learning objectives. Uh, I'm kind of setting up a few other talks on TBI and brain injury coming up. So I thought I would unpack some of these things um, for everyone. Um, now, when we talk about traumatic brain injury, we talk about changes in mental status. And we talk about different levels. And clinically, we use the Glasgow Coma Scale. And so uh, when we talk about mild TBI or MTBI or mild traumatic brain injury, we talk about a Glasgow Coma Scale uh, score of 13 to 15. So usually uh, patients report that uh, they've had normal scans. They reported minimal loss of consciousness, seconds or minutes, or not even uh, loss of consciousness required for this definition. We talk about patients that are dazed or confused. Now, repeat mild TBIs over extended periods of time to months to years of scan, uh, scale of time uh, can cause cumulative neurological or cognitive deficits versus repeat MTBIs within a short period of time can actually be catastrophic or fatal. We're talking hours or days or weeks. Now, moderate TBIs uh, with the GCS score of 9 to 12, uh, denote a loss of consciousness between a few minutes and a few hours. Confusion uh, can last days to weeks. This uh, imparts physical, cognitive, or behavioral impairments, which can last for months or can be permanent. Generally, these patients can make a good recovery with treatment, uh, or they successfully learn to compensate for their deficits. Versus severe TBIs, we're talking Glasgow coma scales of eight or less. These generally require heroic life-saving interventions. Uh, they can uh, be caused by both closed and open head injuries. Um, there are severe functional long-term versus short-term changes in these patients. Um, this affects them globally, their thinking, their sensation, their language, their emotions, and this imparts an increased risk of epilepsy or other neurodegenerative conditions, which I'm going to talk about. So what is this state, this, this condition? You know, it's a real emerging epidemic, and it primarily targets the, the male able-bodied workforce. Now, it will become one of the leading causes of death in the next few decades. So when we talk about TBI, we call it concussion. TBI equals concussion. So that is an alteration of brain function or any evidence of brain pathology, which is attributed to an external mechanical force. Um, and in young ladies, it's actually really 
uh, shown here, that's actually soccer is one of the leading causes in, in young girls um, of TBIs. And so uh, TBI affects every aspect of an individual. So I talk about this a lot in my clinic, that a leaky gut equals a leaky brain. And so I'm going to unpack that for you. So after a brain injury, no matter what the level, tight junctions which connect mucosal epithelial cells become dysfunctional, which allows large macromolecules like food antigens or food particles to cross into the bloodstream, which can activate the immune system. Now, the mucosal lining often atrophies and dies with changes that occur within minutes after a brain injury. So if you can believe this, the gut lining is damaged within minutes of a brain injury. So what does this mean for the neurologists who are not studying this? What does this mean for all of our colleagues who are not unpacking the research on intestinal permeability and blood-brain barrier permeability? So similarly, tight junctions of the blood-brain barrier also break down, and neuroinflammatory chemicals actually enter and can wreak havoc on the system. Brain injury often contributes to over- or under-activation of the immune system, which may induce autoimmunity or cause immune compromise. TBIs can trigger autonomic dysfunction, disorders of visceral sensing and processing, and impair gut motility, all of which we use LDN for. Now, I want to talk about our friends, the microglia. Microglia are macrophages of the central nervous system. They are the first line of defense of our immune system. So this picture um, is an overview of the normal behavior in a healthy brain of microglia. To your left, we show that microglia have highly motile processes which continuously remodel their local environment. In the center, they structurally and functionally interact with synaptic elements. So this is illustrated by a dendritic branch and spines. The spine is in green that, that this process is reaching out to. And this occurs via direct contacts as shown and the exchange of molecular signals. To the right, this healthy microglia is contributing to the restructuring of neuronal circuitry. It is phagocytosing, or eating, synaptic elements and newborn cells. We can see this in light blue, light green here. And microglia morphology and behavior actually display variability um, across the central nervous system regions and stages of its lifespan. I find it so interesting that the papers in immunology and neurology and microbiology, and GI, and so many other systems are coming out with this information, but no one is talking to each other. And this is why it's so critical that we do this, and we reach across, across comfort and across our own uh, disciplines. But this great document, this great image here, uh, was in a neuroscience journal, and it talks about the fact that dysfunctional microglia play a huge role in neurodegenerative disorders. So I want to talk about toll-like receptor 4. Toll-like receptor 4 
is located on the surface of myeloid dendritic cells and activated by specific signals or targets. These are called ligands. So once activated down the left-hand side of this picture, it triggers inflammation, and some participate in autoimmune disease. We talk about induction of toll-like receptor 4 and interleukin-12. These are linked to autoimmunity. In response to TBIs, microglia will migrate to the site of injury and, el and eliminate cellular and molecular debris. Activated microglia, just like macrophages responding to uh, an insult in the bloodstream, will release noxious chemical signals, including pro-inflammatory cytokines, reactive oxygenation species, nitrogen species, and can cause persistent neuroexcitation via glutamate release. And this exacerbates existing damage and precedes neurodegeneration. Now, this is a bigger picture of what's going on when we get microglia activation, the so-called going from an M1 to an M2 state. This persistent activation is a real problem because there aren't many things that we have in the world of, of pharmacology to turn off this signaling. And LDN is one of the only things that we know that can do this. It's a powerful microglial modifier via the blockade of toll-like receptor 4. This powerful mechanism of action, which is an antagonistic effect on a non-opioid receptor, toll-like receptor 4. So in my research on this, microglia activation in TBI is actually really highly nuanced. It's not an all-or-nothing situation. This can correspond to a neurotoxic or a neuropriming state, and microglia are activated in different phenotypes. So when we treat our patients, we talk about the fact that most of the time, concussion is a state that is very treatable. But in a subset of patients, they undergo changes that are persistent, persistently problematic the so-called post-concussive syndrome, which requires a multidisciplinary and multifactorial approach to treat. One of the number one things as uh, a holistic practitioner will do is to target therapeutics in a patient via mitochondrial therapeutic foods. I'd like to, to state that it's not an all-or-nothing thing, and now the research is showing that not all foods are good, as I alluded to. Take, for instance, spinach here. So, this uh, discusses some of the work of Dr. Aristo Vajdani and other colleagues. Spinach may be counterproductive. I want to reference the work of uh, Dr. Vaishnav and colleagues. This uh, image shows uh, plant and human aquaporin homology. So this shows conserved amino acid sequences between corn, soybean, spinach leaf, tomato, and human aquaporin-4. So what are aquaporins? Aquaporin literally equals water channels. Water channels regulate the flow of water in and out of most organisms, including humans. Aquaporin-4 is the most researched in neurological disorders. It plays an important role in blood-brain barrier defense, and it contributes to uh, astrocytic foot processes. So they're concentrated in these aspects of astrocytes. 
It's also concentrated in lower levels in organs such as lung, thyroid, and stomach. In the brain, aquaporin-4 plays a role in neuroplasticity, removal of waste from the brain, and control of water in and out of the brain. How many brain conditions, including uh, Alzheimer's disease or other conditions, acute processes cause acute water on the brain or edema? These are the water channels that contribute to that. So again, we're looking at tomato, spinach, soybean, and corn in this case. We look at a lot of things that have to do with molecular mimicry. This is the work of Dr. Aristo Vajdani et al. Uh, the mechanism of food protein antibodies which are, have cross-reactivity and lead to neuroautoimmunity. So I thought I would bring one aspect to this talk that not a lot of uh, clinicians get into, um, but in my work with traumatic brain injury, I feel that it is pertinent to talk about the fact that circulating autoreactive antibodies can cause the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. As long as the blood-brain barrier is intact, the brain and, and nervous system are protected, even if there are multiple antibodies in the bloodstream. Any breach of the blood-brain barrier via physical or emotional stressors can allow dietary antibodies, such as, such as aquaporins, the access to astrocytic foot processes. Once the foot process is destroyed, which these foot processes of astrocytes line the blood-brain barrier and actually contribute to this semi-impermeable uh, semi membrane. Once these foot processes are destroyed, the blood-brain barrier is damaged and circulating antibodies can target neurological tissues, similar to the antibody's specific target antigen. So antibodies that are made against food aquaporins have been shown to react to aquaporin-4, human aquaporin-4, which, as I stated, is very highly concentrated in brain tissue. In these patients with uh, the prototypic condition is actually NMO, or neuromyelitis optica, which is a subtype of MS, or multiple sclerosis. So dietary aquaporins, as it turns out, are really resilient. They actually withstand high-temperature cooking, uh, and they can reach the GI tract as whole proteins. So there isn't an easy way around this. Aquaporin-4 is also expressed as stomach, as I stated, and so corn, spinach, soy, and tomato may contribute to GI barrier breakdown. So if you have a patient with a TBI, we may actually also institute not only mitochondrial foods, that are helpful for healing and uh, an elimination protocol, but actually aquaporin-free foods while we work on healing. So in, uh, this again shows that the homology is in place between human aquaporin-4 and these conserved amino acid sequences in spinach, tomato, soy, corn uh, proteins of aquaporins. In the last couple minutes, I want to just break down as one humble clinician that sees the effects of TBI in my practice, some clinical pearls. Number one, when I have a patient that's suffering, I want to make sure they're on an oligoantigenic elimination diet, meaning the elimination of major allergies. Now, this should not be a permanent thing. I have a, uh, a lot to say about unpacking things like restricted diets, such as the autoimmune paleo program or AIP. In and of itself, 
in the beginning several years ago when these diets came out, they were always a great thing, but patients got on them for very long periods of time, and that can lead to further issues with restrictive diets over time. So when I talk about that, I talk about a short-term, very stringent oligoantigenic elimination diet with the consideration of these aquaporin-rich foods to eliminate. I talk about high-quality fats, which Dr. Livedgood and some other patients have talked about, the optimal omega-6 to 3 ratios, and therapeutic omega-3s, which I use uh, very, very, very aggressively. We talk about, uh, there's some great studies that have been shown that they give very high-dose omega-3s, therapeutic uh, uh, triglyceride ester-based omega-3s in the hospitals and really had amazing effects with patients with TBIs. Now, of course, you have to work with a physician and know uh, if a patient's had, say, a hemorrhagic stroke, may not be the best thing to be doing with some of these uh, blood-thinning property uh, supplements. That goes to some of the other supplements that I might talk about. That's my little disclaimer here. Um, so definitely high-quality fats. And number th uh, another huge point is gut healing. So again, you cannot heal the brain without healing the gut. Um, I talk a lot about my clinic of using... Uh, uh, advanced testing for the microbiome, individualized testing and treatment, uh, support using short-chain fatty acids, which support colonic health and thus uh, small intestinal bacterial health, support for fatty acid oxidation, mitochondrial health, and the number one thing is to treat any underlying co-infection. You will not heal a gut or a brain if there's a rip-roaring underlying infection. The same thing to do with autoimmune disease. So it's the number one thing that I learned from uh, some of my mentors, like Dr. Ken Holtorf, who are here, uh, and other people that I've learned from, uh, is you must treat any underlying infection. And as we find these infections, we find co-infections in deeper and deeper layers. I also am a huge proponent of vitamin D optimization, glutathione and other antioxidant optimization, methylation support, nitric oxide balance, which I'll be happy to unpack at a later time. And I use low-dose naltrexone um, in roughly 80... I offer it to nearly all of my patients, quite honestly. Almost everyone is a candidate in my clinic for low-dose naltrexone, but... Um, in traumatic brain injury, I, I really do believe that low-dose naltrexone is a very important piece because I do not have other, uh, other microglial modifiers that are so potentially powerful to help turn off this persistent neuroexcitotoxicity. Uh, I use limbic system retraining, biofeedback, and neurofeedback techniques, and hyperbaric oxygen therapy in some cases, and other therapies outside of the scope of this lecture. I just want to encourage all practitioners out there uh, that when you start to unpack TBI or any other alteration of mental status, as Homer might tell you, uh, is that it is a real process of number one, number two, number three, listening to your patient. If the patient tells you that something is wrong but all the tests are normal, keep digging. Thank you. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.